0: This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and my guest today thinks that US foreign policy since the end of the Cold War has been a resounding failure. What's worse, that failure is our own fault, a direct result of America's chosen grand strategy. And he has an alternative. Here with me is Steve Walt from Harvard's Kennedy School. He has a new book out called The Hell of Good Intentions, America's Foreign Policy Elite, and Decline of U.S. Primacy. Welcome, Steve. Great to have you here.
1: It's nice to be talking with you,
0: Brian. So let me just start by saying that I think this is an incredibly important debate. Clearly, the world is going through a period of transition and... and as is U.S. foreign policy, and the decisions that the U.S. makes are going to be critically important in the world. And I'm really glad you, you engaged this set of debates with a really serious contribution. And I want to start out by drawing out the argument of, of your book. In, in brief, you argue that U.S. foreign policy has been a disaster since the end of the Cold War. And the primary reason is that the U.S. has pursued this strategy that you call liberal hegemony. So what is liberal hegemony?
1: Uh, Well, liberal hegemony is a grand strategy that basically seeks to transform the world in America's image. Uh, It's liberal not in the sense of being left-wing, but in the sense of trying to promote sort of classic liberal values, uh, democracy, liberty, human rights, open markets, rule of law, all of those things. Um, It's hegemony because it seeks to do that basically by using American power, that the United States must lead this process, must use the various instruments of government, to spread these ideals uh, as far as possible, peacefully if we can, but if necessary, uh, using military force. And that has basically been the grand strategy we've followed under Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama. And then the question is, of course, what Donald Trump is ultimately going to do with that. And I do argue in the book that this uh, strategy has been, if not a complete failure, almost, uh, almost a complete failure. Uh, in various ways.
0: So let, let's dig into that because I think for a lot of people listening to the show, that that list of, of values and uh, that that shape this policy sound pretty appealing. It's kind of as you said, it's it sounds like the U.S. Um, what are the most important? policy mistakes that this approach has had led us to
1: make? Uh, well, first of all, I agree with you. Those are uh, terrific values, and I'm delighted to live in a country where they are reasonably uh, well-established. Uh, but I think one way to see this is simply compare the world of the early 1990s, uh, shortly after the end of the Cold War, with the world we're in today. Uh, in the early 90s, the United States was on good terms with most of the major powers, maybe all the major powers. Uh, Iraq had been disarmed. Iran had no nuclear 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 enrichment capability. We thought we had capped North Korea's nuclear program. Uh, Globalization is spreading. Uh, Democracy is spreading. Uh, NATO is beginning to expand. The European Union is expanding. And everyone is filled with this extraordinary optimism that uh, old-style power politics is gone and we're heading into a new world. There's even the Oslo Accords in the Middle East suggesting that we're going to finally have peace between Israelis and Palestinians. If you compare that to the world of today, China's power and ambitions have grown. Russia has seized Crimea. Uh, Our relationship with Moscow now worse than at any time since the Cold War, and Russia and China cooperating closely. Democracy is now in retreat around the world. Uh, According to Freedom House, this is the 12th consecutive year when global freedom has declined. North Korea, India, and Pakistan have all tested nuclear weapons. Iran is essentially a latent nuclear power. And our efforts to bring peace in the Middle East have all been humiliating failures. Uh, I haven't even mentioned the Iraq war yet, but of course, you know, we get attacked on 9-11, we invade Afghanistan, then Iraq, and neither of those things work out particularly well either. So, uh, you know, when uh, when I say that the American foreign policy has largely been a failure, that's the kind of thing I'm pointing to. Then I can uh, I'll say more about what exactly we did wrong that produced that, uh, if you'd like.
0: Good. Yeah, let me do that. And let me push you a little bit of, on this, because the the contrast between 2003 and the contemporary period is is very compelling. You just laid out that contrast really well. And my question is, is the liberal hegemony grad, grand strategy really? underlying those changes because as a a good realist as i know you are would say you know the re-emergence of great power rivalry it really never went anywhere countries develop more capabilities so it's not surprising that we're, we're increasing odds with um with uh great powers um different countries have different value systems as you know john Mearsheimer is arguing this in his book about um, the role of nationalism and uh, and the reemergence of great power conflict, and it's not surprising that these kinds of conflicts are are reemerging. And one could argue they would have emerged no matter what the U.S. had done. So help help me connect what contribution um, liberal. Uh, the pursuit of liberal hegemony made to the current state of affairs.
1: That's a great question. So some of these negative developments, like China's continued rise, I think would have occurred regardless of what the United States did. We might have affected the rate a little bit, but it would have happened uh, regardless. But our fingerprints are over a lot of the other uh, failures. Um, in particular, this idea of spreading uh, the American system, if you will, uh, far and wide, threatened, of course, non-democracies. Um, so. NATO expansion, moving NATO progressively uh, eastward into Russia's sphere of influence, declaring that this was an open-ended process, uh, interfering in various ways in the so-called color revolutions in Eastern Europe. Uh, All of this alarmed Moscow, and no matter how many times we said none of this was directed at them, they, of course, uh, didn't believe it. So one of the reasons we have a substantially worse relationship with Russia today is the fact that we did a variety of things. that really threatened Russia's uh, security interests in ways that I think we would have understood if someone was doing them Uh, back here in the Western Hemisphere, but we didn't uh, recognize it then. Uh, Similarly, uh, the effort to promote regime change in a variety of places, uh, obviously uh, Afghanistan and Iraq first, but subsequently in Libya, with the aim of trying to create representative liberal democracies over the longer term, I think has been a near uh, total failure. And you could point also to uh, American involvement in places like Somalia or Sudan and Yemen. As equally unsuccessful uh, efforts to do this, and then one final thing um, which I didn't say much about is the United States was sort of active in promoting globalization throughout the 1990s, and and I believe in an open international trading order, but I think it's now pretty clear that we rushed that uh, in a variety of ways. We pushed it a little bit too far and a little bit too fast, and more importantly, it simply didn't deliver as promised. The vision was that this was going to create great prosperity for the United States and for others, and I think it's clear that it was very good for uh, the Asian lower and middle classes. It was very good for the 1% here in the United States and in other parts of the world, but the people who were largely left out were the sort of lower and middle classes in the United States and Europe. That's one of the things that has fueled the sort of emergence of populism there. you put all of that together, this optimistic effort to sort of turn the rest of the world into a harmonious uh, carbon copy of the United States, or at least something very much like the United States, simply didn't work very well.
0: In addition to those policy failures, what have the consequences been for the United States itself and its role in the world?
1: Well, just for for one thing, uh, it's cost us a lot of money. I mean, the cost of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars alone is somewhere in the order of five to six trillion dollars when you add up the full cost of everything those, uh, those wars are ultimately going to produce. Moreover, Uh, It's been an enormous distraction. American leaders from Clinton to Bush to Obama and beyond have had to spend enormous amounts of time trying to figure out what to do in Afghanistan, what to do in Iraq, what to do in Syria. Uh, Should we be more actively involved in Ukraine or not? And at a moment where there were pressing domestic needs here in the United States and a lot more attention uh, should have been devoted to them. I think you can also make the argument that some of these policies contributed, not the sole cause, but contributed to the financial crisis in 2008, which was enormously harmful uh, to the United States as well. So you put all of this together, and again, this particular strategy of trying to sort of manage the world, and in particular, to shape local politics in lots of different places, uh, has squandered a lot of resources, cost enormous time, and led us to neglect things that we should have paid more attention to here at home.
0: So if liberal hegemony has been such a tremendous across-the-board failure as you as you paint it. Why do you believe the strategy has persisted? I mean, it's really striking that, um, as you point out, we've had two Republican presidents and two Democratic presidents even before we get to President Trump, um, who followed similar policies, currently fit into your definition of liberal hegemony. And, and yet, um, as you also mention in the book, uh, each president successful presidential candidate since Bill Clinton, regardless of party, has run on a platform of doing less in U.S. foreign policy. Yet once they're in office, they haven't. So so what's going on here? Why the persistence?
1: Well, uh, part of it is uh, sort of, you know, to to paraphrase Bill Clinton in another context, uh, we did this because we could. Uh, the the United States was very pow- was and is very powerful and extremely secure here in the Western Hemisphere. No great power rivals anywhere nearby. Uh, protected by these two enormous oceans, um, that allowed the United States to not worry very much about defending the American homeland and be able to project power all over the world and interfere in various ways. So part of the reason is simply we were in a position where we could, and partly we were very optimistic at the end of the Cold War. Everything seemed to be going well. The wind was at our back. This was going to be easy to do, or so we believed. And finally, um, I and this is a point that John Mearsheimer does make in his book, um, This is wired into sort of America's political culture. We're a very liberal society. Liberalism is a universalist philosophy. It thinks that all human beings uh, have the same rights, and therefore, if some country somewhere isn't uh, guaranteeing those rights to its people, we should go change that. So all of that's in the background. My argument in the book is that it's because the foreign policy elite in the United States was deeply committed to this uh, strategy. They saw it both as desirable in its own right. They thought it would be good for the United States and good for the world. Uh, But as I say, perhaps a bit snarkily, it's also a foreign full employment policy for the foreign policy elite it gives them a lot to do it enhances their power and status gives them a greater claim on the budget and if you look at that elite closely you see that there is in fact an overwhelming consensus within the establishment behind trying to run the world
0: and why is that usually in other policy domains we're used to having you know debates, big debates about alternative positions, alternative approaches to policy. Why is there, I think Ben Rhodes used the, the very colorful phrase, the blob, to describe uh, the foreign policy delete, elite. Why is the blob so homogeneous? Why aren't there
1: other voices? Well, again, it's not that there are never any debates, right? There was a debate over the Iran nuclear deal. There's been, a, I think, a fairly lively debate over, um, say, what to do in Syria as well. But there is also an enormous consensus within this establishment. Um, you know, you know what the main principles might be: that uh, you know, NATO is almost sacred. Democracy and human rights should be promoted although we have to occasionally uh, turn a blind eye to our allies. Uh, Iran, Russia, China are now very bad. Uh, American leadership is central, absolutely important, cannot be uh, given up, and and so on and so forth. There's a, a pretty broad consensus, and it is a consensus behind using American power, again, to try and shape politics in every part of the world. There is no part of the world that we don't regard as an important interest Um, And in particular, to try and push other societies through a variety of means to becoming more democratic, more like us, and if possible, to become embedded in a set of institutions or alliances that the United States has uh, helped design and pretty much leads. And that's, I think, a pretty powerful consensus within that group. Uh, I can say a little bit more about why I think that consensus exists in a second.
0: Yeah, yeah. Why do you think that consensus exists?
1: The foreign policy elite is an unusual community, right? First of all, it has no membership requirements in the sense that you don't have to get a particular degree. You don't have to pass the bar exam. You don't have to pass medical boards. You don't need a license to practice foreign policy. You just have to be recognized and accepted by other members of that elite as smart, energetic, loyal, sensible, and all of those things. Um, Second, it is a community where people know each other. Uh, particularly as you ascend the higher up you get everybody knows each other personally and given those two qualities of course your success professionally depends on your reputation and your networks and of course if your success depends on reputation then there's an extraordinary um, incentive to remain within the consensus, not to do or say anything that might lead people to question your judgment, question your uh, political values, or anything like that. And that consensus, for the last 25 years at least, has been uh, very much in favor of this strategy I've talked about, where American leadership is essential and the United States has to run the world. I try and show that by looking at three different task forces. They're bipartisan efforts to explain what American grand strategy should be, one in 2006, one in 2013, and one in 2016. What's interesting about these three task forces is, you know, they're all done by bold-faced names in the foreign policy elite. They're bipartisan. And the conditions under which they are written are very different, you know, before and after the financial crisis, for example. And yet the answer in all of these, the recommendations, are essentially identical. Identical and interchangeable. No matter what the condition of the country is, the foreign policy elite wants to stick to the same strategy.
0: So it's interesting, as you know, the Chicago Council does an annual survey of public opinion on foreign policy issues, and we've, we've been doing it since 1974. One of the questions that we that we ask every year and have long time series data on is, do you think the United States should take an active part in in or stay out of world affairs. Um, And, you know, over those years, Americans always poll at over 50%. And one of the things that was interesting in this year's poll that we just released in October is that we had some of the highest levels we've ever recorded on that. And as you go down those elements of the um, liberal hegemony, foreign policy, whether it be trade, relationships with allies, working with international institutions, sets of agreements and all, you know, we, we saw this year some of the, the highest levels of support we've ever seen before. Does that indicate that there is in our democracy that this is also reinforced by the public? What, what role does the public play in this?
1: Uh, I actually think the public plays a very different role here. And there's a section of the book uh, which I call Mind the Gap. Uh, which basically talks about the gap between elite attitudes and public perceptions. Um, you're absolutely right. And I used, by the way, some of the uh, Chicago Council surveys. Thank you. Uh, and going back decades now, it's been clear that there is a substantial gap between what the public wants in foreign policy and what il- elites want. Uh, as you said, the public is opposed and has been for a long time to real isolationism. They don't want Fortress America. They don't want the United States to disengage. They want the United States to Play an active role. Um, But notice that that's a question that, of course, comes with no cost associated with it. There's no constraint. Do you want the United States to play an active role or not? Well, of course, Americans are going to say they want to. But once you start asking more detailed questions and you ask people to consider alternatives, recognize that there might be opportunity costs, there is a gap between what elites say and what the public says. Uh, Just one example in 2013, 80% of Americans believed. Uh, quote, we should not think so much in international terms, but concentrate on our own national problems and building up strength here at home. So one of the problems the foreign policy elite has is convincing the American people to embark on this ambitious uh, foreign policy, this ambitious grand strategy. They don't really need the public's active support right? What they need is the public's tolerance, because most Americans actually don't care that much one way or the other about foreign policy unless something really big and important happens. Um, And so part of the book also tries to explain how the elite goes about making sure that public opposition doesn't coalesce, doesn't form, and doesn't uh, slow down what they're trying to do.
0: So that Creates a perfect transition to the one character that we haven't talked about in this historical um, move forward, which is Donald Trump. Certainly, he during the campaign railed against this traditional U.S. foreign policy agenda, post-war agenda, uh, railed against U.S. overreach in the domestic affairs of other countries. You know, talked about turning attention back to the United States. Uh, what do you see there? Is he getting U.S. foreign policy right?
1: Uh, Well, he understood, and I think he intuited that the American people understood, that American foreign policy had gone badly off the rails. And he said in one of his first big foreign policy speeches, American foreign policy is a complete and, and total disaster. And he also took dead aim at the foreign policy elite on a number of occasions, including the elite's in the Republican Party, who were very critical of Trump for uh, understandable reasons. They understood he was uh, of a different uh, order as well. And as you pointed out uh, a while back, you know, Trump in that sense was not unique. All of his predecessors had run for office saying they were going to do less. Bill Clinton said, it's the economy, stupid. George W. Bush talked about an end to nation building and a humble foreign policy. And of course, Barack Obama got going because he had been the sort of one major candidate who had opposed the Iraq War back in 2002, 2003. Once in office, they tend to behave very differently. And what I find interesting about Trump, and I lay out in a chapter about him, is that he's in a sense the worst of both worlds. Uh, He's ended up, in terms of the substance of his policy, doing very much what his predecessors did, but he's done it in a completely chaotic and incompetent style. So his style in foreign policy is radically different, uh, as is his style in many other areas of politics, but the substance of American policy has changed far less than I think many people realize that it's really not the just the president's Twitter feed. You have to look at what the United States is actually doing, and that is not as different. Um, And in that sense, Trump is like his predecessors. He ran in one position, and he's governing in a slightly different way.
0: Let me dig into that a little bit. What do you see as the most important continuities? Lots of people point to pulling out of Paris, uh, undermining the the Trans-Pacific Partnership right off of the the bat. What are the continuities that you see that are so important?
1: Well, uh, let's just start with trade. Remember that multilateral trade agreement, have always been somewhat controversial in the United States. Uh, Hillary Clinton said she was opposed to TPP during the campaign as well. So he has, I think, put globalization on probation, but his skepticism about some of these uh, trade deals is hardly unprecedented in in American history. Um, He's been very critical of NATO, and in particular, NATO burden sharing, but of course, so was Obama, so was Bush, so was every president going back Eisenhower. And as of this conversation, you know, NATO is still intact. The United States is still there. In fact, in some respects, we're deepening our commitment to some uh, NATO countries. In the Middle East, He has essentially doubled down with all of our traditional Middle Eastern allies, with Egypt, with Saudi Arabia, with Israel, with Jordan. Um, So in that sense, there's no real sea change. He's just continuing uh, past policies as well. His counter-terror policy is identical uh, to his predecessors, uh, maybe with just a few more bombs. Um, Just like Barack Obama, he sent more troops to Afghanistan. Having said in the campaign that we were going to get out of the nation-building business, we are still in it and with more troops uh, under under Donald Trump as well. So there are some real differences. I think uh, he is uh, almost uh, entirely indifferent to sort of the traditional human rights agenda, although occasionally we will use that as a club to bash countries we don't like. Uh, but in terms of the actual substance of American uh, policy, the, the substance is not as different under Trump as listening to his speeches or following his Twitter feed might lead you to believe.
0: One of the things I really like about your book is not only do you have a consistently argued critique of what's come before, but you actually put out an, a positive agenda of what you think um, you, uh, should guide U.S. grand strategy. And you capture it in a phrase called offshore balancing. What is offshore balancing and how does it work?
1: Offshore balancing is really uh, has been America's traditional grand strategy. It was our strategy for much of the 20th century, Uh, in fact. I think both our uh, handling of World War I, World War II, and the Cold War were consistent with that. And it's a realist grand strategy that says the the principal uh, national security dangers to the United States would come if any other country... We're able to be in the same kind of position the United States is, that is to say, be a strong, powerful uh, economy like ours, but also dominate their particular region the same way we dominate the Western Hemisphere, where we face no serious challengers. Um, A country in that position in some other part of the world would be free to project power around the world the same way we do. Because they wouldn't have to worry about protecting their homeland, just as we don't worry really about protecting Minnesota from invasion or anything like that. Um, so traditionally, the United States didn't want any power to control all of Europe, didn't want any power to control all of the industrial might of Asia as well, and we fought World War One, World War Two, and waged the Cold War to prevent that. Today. Uh, The only country that could possibly be a regional hegemon is China, so I argue we need to be focusing most of our strategic energy uh, on managing China and, in particular, making sure that it cannot dominate the countries nearest. I don't mean conquer them. I mean be able to sway them or coerce them or compel them, and that means the United States would remain very actively engaged in Asia. By contrast, there's no potential hegemon in Europe. Russia is actually too weak to dominate it. There's no European country uh, that could possibly dominate all of Europe. So we don't have to do very much there. We even could conceivably... um, withdraw from NATO, let uh, the Europeans handle European security, and similarly, uh, the Middle East is incredibly divided now in a variety of ways. There's no country that could possibly dominate the Middle East. We certainly couldn't do it when we were there in force uh, during the Iraq War, and so the United States should basically militarily um, go back to the policy we had from 1945 to roughly 1990, where we had interests in the Middle East, but we didn't have a lot of military forces there. We only sent them there if they were absolutely necessary. That's what I mean by offshore balancing. We only intervene when the balance of power breaks down in some critical area. Most of the time, we try to get others to do most of the heavy lifting, and we get in at the last minute decisively to shape events, but only when we have to.
0: So let me jump in and let's, let's open up. Those three regions that you talked about, starting with with Asia and the rise of China, we do have a military footprint in that region in many ways, including onshore troop uh, troops in places like Japan and South Korea, bases in Philippines. What does this imply for for those deployments? Are they consistent with your strategy, or should they change? No,
1: uh, no, they're con- they're completely consistent because if you look again at China uh, and its rapid rise and its uh, expanding military power and what appear to be expanding ambitions as well, um, the United States uh, needs to be there now. One of the things that we also see is countries in the region from Japan to South Korea to Vietnam to Australia to India are increasingly interested in having the United States there precisely because they're worried about China's rise as well. And this is not all that different from the Cold War, when these countries were also worried about Russia or the Soviet Union, and to some degree, at least for a while, also China as well. So this is a pretty familiar balance of power uh, situation. I would just note one thing. This is going to be a tricky diplomatic challenge for the United States because managing that coalition, uh, a coalition that conceivably could run again from India through Australia and all the way uh, up to Japan, is really an immense diplomatic task, Um, and therefore it's going to require a lot of American expertise, a lot of American attention, uh, certainly a certain amount of uh, military power, some of which we already have there, and Uh, the ability to persuade those allies to do their fair share as well, because if they don't, it'll be hard to sustain public support for it here in the United States. Um, But again, one of the reasons that offshore balancing is very uh, clearly not an isolationist policy is it mandates American involvement in critical parts of the world when the balance of power might be upended.
0: So, Steve, uh, China, as it's rising, is incrementally increasing its claims around the Asian region, um, probably most visibly the building up of uh, the the islands in the South China Sea, um, even even building military capabilities on those islands. Um, At what point should the U.S. be engaging? How should we view that activity and what should we Should we be actively trying to discourage it, challenge it? What do we do as China builds up its regional capabilities?
1: Well, our primary goal, it seems to me, is to be retaining uh, solid, reliable, uh, reasonably uh, effective diplomatic and military relations with other countries in the region uh, which are often in, quite capable themselves Japan has uh, actually a pretty capable military it could be stronger but it's pretty good South Korea has quite uh, capable military forces in its own area as well and the the real, task for us is to not have china be able to slowly persuade its neighbors to distance themselves from the united states i mean what's really going to happen here is a competition for influence in asia where we will try to retain the allies that we currently have possibly form some new ones uh, deepen those relationships if necessary and china will try to find ways to distance, get those countries to distance themselves from Washington. They can do that in part with economic pressure. They can do it by accusing the United States of doing various things uh, over time. Um, One of the reasons I think it was a mistake, for example, for President Trump to uh, leave the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement was it had a critical strategic role. It was part of maintaining the American diplomatic economic presence in Asia. And some Asian countries, such as Japan, Prime Minister Abe had worked very hard to sell the agreement in Japan itself. When we backed out, we undercut him. And that's the kind of thing that will cause Asian countries to lose confidence in the United States and maybe start thinking about alternative arrangements.
0: So some people argue that China's already winning this this competition. For your strategy, what would be the key indicators that you would look at to determine how this is going? And are there any kind of definitive, if X happens, that means we have to fundamentally increase um, some sort of activity or some sort of uh, effort to win over those allies?
1: Well, the primary thing that will hold that alliance together is the Uh, shared concern about the possibility of Chinese dominance. And again, I'm not suggesting that China will go on some kind of imperial rampage and try to conquer all of these countries. Rather, it would try to establish a relationship with most of its neighbors that's not unlike the American relationship with most of our uh, neighbors in the Western Hemisphere. We're not trying to conquer any of them, but we expect a certain amount of deference, and we don't want them forming strategic partnerships, you know, hosting military bases or something like that, uh, you know, for a hostile uh, a hostile power. So what would worry me in Asia is if you started seeing uh, Asian leaders, uh, distant, you know, saying they didn't want to actually have a strategic relationship with the United States any longer. They didn't want to allow uh, the United States to uh, maintain military facilities there, um, that they were going to either be completely neutral or they might actually start welcoming a closer strategic uh, relationship with China. Uh, I think that's unlikely in a number of cases, but there's some countries uh, that that have flirted with this idea. Even the Philippines has flirted uh, with this idea a little bit in the past. Now, Sometimes countries in Asia will do this as a way of sort of getting our attention. You know, if you don't think you're getting enough support from Washington, then you threaten to realign. And I think we have to view some of those threats with a certain amount of skepticism. This just underscores my point that this is going to be a very dip, uh, very complicated set of diplomatic relations, and we are going to need lots of smart well-educated people who are very familiar with these countries, very familiar with their cultures, very comfortable dealing with them. And then we're going to have to shower them with a lot of high-level diplomatic attention. This is as much a sort of political and diplomatic problem as it is a purely military problem, although it has a military dimension to it.
0: Okay, let me take us to Europe. Europe, as you described it, um, Russia certainly is more belligerent in the in its neighborhood. Putin has active designs on disrupting, um, disrupting alliances and relationships inside of Europe and between the U.S. and um, Europe. Why is that something that we shouldn't really worry about?
1: Um, well, it's not that we shouldn't worry about it. We obviously uh, should be a uh pushing back in in certain respects but if you take a somewhat longer term perspective here um europe is easily capable of handling uh, the security challenges it faces at least in terms of the resources it has whether it can handle them politically is a somewhat different question and let's just think you know focus for a second on russia Uh, europe combined has a population of about 500 million people Uh, russia's is only about 140 million Uh, it's aging rapidly it's actually going to shrink over time europe has a combined economic strength of 17 trillion dollars something roughly the equivalent of ours russia is 2 trillion Uh, russia the russian economy is actually smaller than that of italy right now and finally nato's european members not counting the united states just Europe, spend three to four times what Russia does on the military every year. They do not spend it very well. They waste a lot of money. It's not uh, directed at uh, amassing combat power in ways it could be. But the idea that Europe somehow lacks the wherewithal to stand up to Russia if necessary, I think, just doesn't uh, bear much scrutiny. So if the United States wants to, we should um, uh, gradually reduce our commitment to europe make that clear to the europeans not because we're angry but because we want them to be self-reliant we believe they're capable of doing that and this i think of as a process that takes you know at least a decade because it'll take a while for the europeans uh, to get their act together as well one final point here and it's kind of an, I- an ironic one is the current bad relationship with Russia is in really no one's interest, and trying to find a way to settle that and improve it would be in everyone's interest. It would be in Europe's interest if Russia were not interfering in Ukraine and if it wasn't trying to intimidate the, Balk- uh, the Baltic states if it wasn't interfering in European politics. It would be in Russia's interest to have sanctions lifted and to no longer be worried about NATO continuing to move eastward. Russia would like that. And it would, of course, be in America's interest if Russia and China were not cooperating as closely. So there's a win-win-win here. And the irony is that I think Donald Trump may even have understood that at some relatively crude level, but he has gotten his own relations and the relations with his entourage and his businesses so entangled with Russia and they and cannot... Tell a straight story about it, that he's no longer in a position to do anything about this. And we'll probably have to wait to another president in order to do this rather sensible strategic move.
0: So one of the things that some people are concerned about with the U.S. playing a less active role in Europe, um, in the rebalancing in Asia, has to do with nuclear weapons and the potential for proliferation, even by our allies at this point. If we're not going to do the heavy lifting we were doing before, if our, our nuclear umbrella, our will willingness to use nuclear weapons um to deter an attack on our allies is reduced that they could uh looking at their own long-term security interests decide that that is something that they should pursue uh some people are concerned about it uh, with the argument that the more folks who have them in their hands the more likely they are
1: to be used
0: do you share that concern either on the potential of proliferation or its uh or its impacts
1: yeah um Yes and no. Uh, I certainly uh, acknowledge that there is some possibility that if the United States were not providing uh, such, you know, uh, uh, blanket security all over the world, that some countries might uh, start contemplating uh, getting nuclear weapons. I don't think that's automatic. Uh, but it's certainly uh, a potential concern. I would just note, though, that, of course, the strategy we've been following, liberal hegemony, did not stop proliferation either. And in fact, threatening other countries with overthrow, it gives them a huge incentive to think about getting nuclear weapons. That's why North Korea uh, went out and got them, in my view. It's, I think, why Iran has at least thought about it seriously uh, as well. Um, so, in a sense, the strategy we've been following did generate some proliferation. An alternative strategy might generate proliferation, uh, too. I kind of think it's it's a wash. Um, I might add that the countries that might get nuclear weapons, at least in some cases, it might not be as worrisome as in others. Uh, second point is that, of course, proliferation is not a good thing, and I hope we can continue to restrict it, but it's not necessarily a disaster either, right? There have been doom and gloom predictions sort of every time a new country joined the nuclear club, and thankfully, so far, none of those doom and gloom uh, predictions have come about. And I think it's mostly because it doesn't take a genius to figure out that using a nuclear weapon is probably suicidal and would ruin your whole day, um, and so even uh, leaders that we don't like very much and we don't trust very much uh, have shown themselves to be pretty sensible in how they've actually used uh, use nuclear weapons. So, in the worst case, if there was a modest increase in proliferation as a result of the United States following a different strategy, uh, I don't think it would be a catastrophic uh, threat to. Global stability.
0: So, Steve, as we close, I want to ask a a, a final question, which is if you had the opportunity to sit down with President Trump or maybe his foreign policy team, said, Steve, I read your book, really interesting points in there. Could you what would be the single most important policy area that you would encourage the Trump administration to take a different approach on and what that would be if there, we want to explore this? Where should we start? Where's the most important thing that we could do to shift our policy? What would you recommend?
1: Um, that's a great question. I think the hypothetical is unlikely to, to come. <laughs> uh, certainly, I think the, the, the most immediate thing uh, I would recommend is that the uh, president uh, announced that after a careful review, he's decided that the United States has no business trying to uh, determine the future of Afghanistan and that the United States is going to withdraw uh, its military forces there. Uh, so that would be immediate. I don't think that's ultimately the most consequential step we could make, but that would be the most obvious one. We have been there 17 years. No one is optimistic about it ever reaching a positive conclusion. So in a sense, we're just uh, just wasting money there. Um, and then uh, the second more general point is that I would encourage the president to think long and hard about um, where the United States has truly vital interests and where uh, its interests are more optional, Uh, where the United States needs to be committed militarily, uh, that means committing American forces possibly to fight and die, and where it doesn't. And in those areas, we would remain engaged economically, we would certainly be uh, engaged diplomatically, but where we could Uh, readjust some of our international commitments to things that really do uh, defend vital interests as well. Uh, And the last thing I would do is I would tell him to, for God's sake, hang up his telephone and stop tweeting about foreign leaders, because I think Trump has done enormous damage to our international image simply by the way he talks about other countries and the way he tries to humiliate foreign leaders, which doesn't resonate well in those societies. And again, there's, there's surveys uh, from around the world showing that, you know, the United States was pretty well respected at the end of the Obama administration in in most countries around the world. And that sense of people having a favorable image of the United States has plummeted under President Trump. That's kind of soft and uh, ineffable, uh, but I think it does matter. Uh, You do want it to be easy for other governments to cooperate with us, and they won't do that as readily when their populations don't think well of the country. That's one thing a president can really affect by uh, his own personal conduct.
0: Well, Steve, thanks so much for being on Deep Dish and also writing your new book, The Hell of Good Intentions. Uh, As I said up front, I think this is one of the most important discussions uh, to have in our country today and appreciate that you've engaged on it. And thanks for taking the time to share it with
1: us. My pleasure. It was really great talking with you, Brian.
0: And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish. If you like the show, do me a favor and tap the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would like today's episode, please tap share and send it to them as well. I'd like to invite you to join our Facebook group at deep dish on global affairs you can ask our guests follow-up questions about anything you heard today or submit questions for upcoming guests and episodes that's deep dish on global affairs on facebook and as a reminder the opinions you heard belong to the people express them and not the chicago council on global affairs this episode of deep dish was produced by evan fazio our audio engineer is andy zarnecki i'm brian hansen and we'll be back soon with another slice of deep dish